Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 14. In today's conversation, Hope and Bonnie are joined by Colby Academy's Director of Online Elementary Learning and longtime teacher, Mrs. Nicole O'Connor. They discuss the acclaimed trivium of classical education and take an enlightened deep dive with two of its three components, namely logic and rhetoric. This episode is a reminder that no matter what stage of life you may be in, as humans, we are made for the liberal free arts, developing critical skills that are applicable in nearly every occupation and every situation. Enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom, liturgical musician, podcast fanatic, heavy library user, and Colby parent ambassador. I have two lads and two lasses. The youngest is in fifth grade, the eldest is in 10th, and this is our fourth year homeschooling with Colby. And I'm Hope, Bonnie's younger sister and a Colby alumna in a phase of life after being a student, but before becoming a parent. I studied communication theory and philosophy in college, then I went to law school. Now I'm an attorney, an avid home cook, and the fun aunt to Bonnie's kids. All right, today we're speaking with Nicole O'Connor from our the Colby faculty. She's here to talk to us about some areas of the Colby curriculum that the words might have some connotations that aren't exactly accurate, or they might come across as buzzwords. So welcome, Nicole. Thanks for coming to the Colby cast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and discuss one of my favorite courses and one of my favorite things to teach. Tell us about your experience with Colby and tell us about you. Oh, sure. So I started at Colby, I think about six years ago when I had just wee little ones running around and still wanted to teach and really enjoy students, but also wanted wanted to be home. And Colby just provided this amazing place to do that, amazing Catholic community. Um, And I started as the classical teacher, so I taught classical composition my first year. I taught English, um, English 8. And then I've kind of bounced around between 6th grade through 12th grade of just teaching um, really with a focus on the classical subjects. So classical comp 1 and 2, you know, fable, narrative, crea maxim, confirmation, refutation, and then all the way up to logic and rhetoric in the high school. And so that that's where my passion has always been as a teacher. I love I love research, um, but I'm a major revisionist. <laughs> so I revise my work to no end, which is very much rhetoric. It's very much I make my arguments and then I pretty them up for years. I really love um, being able to interact with the students and really change their perception of these topics, especially logic and rhetoric. Um, it's just, it's something like you said, it's logic and rhetoric get a bad rap. And so my goal as their teacher is to make sure they understand that it is a force of good by the time they leave my classroom. I'm really excited uh, for the logic and rhetoric. Like you said, it's such a force for good that can be misused, but when it's put to its proper purpose, just combines um, insight and creativity and the written word and the spoken word and psychology and responsibility and just like a million things that I think are integral to a good life. It's timeless. And that's why I love teaching it. So in our rhetoric class, we study Aristotle, we read Aristotle's rhetoric, and it's so 
fascinating for the students to see how he has a very formulaic structure to the way he lays out the principles and the way, you know, we study rhetoric. He sees it as a, an art, something to be studied and mastered. Um, and yet when he's talking, of, he's talking about humanity, so our emotions, you know, our characteristics by age, these things that it's, it's really unbelievable to see insights. Um, that have carried on that are just a core part of us as humans. <laughs> so I always tell my students that um, rhetoric is very Trinitarian and <laughs> that it's, it's, there's the rule of three, like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's the rule of three. It's written on our hearts. And so when we study rhetoric, those same truths propel our rhetoric to be more successful and more convincing, just being rooted in that truth. Um, because when I when I tell people, hey, uh, you know, they ask me what I teach and I say I teach rhetoric, I get a lot of laughs and a lot of like, oh, so you teach people how to lie or get out of trouble or your children must be interesting. <laughs> you know, oh, no. Just kind of this bad rap of, uh, of seeing it as like a sly way to communicate but that hasn't been my experience especially as a teacher it's just such a beautiful skill that our students can be equipped in so that when they do have the truth to share and they do have an argument they want to make they know what people relate to they know you know Aristotle created this great little template for us of you know for a, for the common folk <laughs> let's use these types <laughs> of words and example for your collegiate scholars let's use this um, and just really meeting people where they're at, which is what we're called to do in the faith as well. So that's kind of my little rhetorical, my rhetoric soapbox of it's not a force of evil. It's a force to shed the light and truth. And and I think my students leave my class really with that understanding, which has been a great joy. We should take the show on the road or something, because with your, uh, your teaching rhetoric and then when it comes up that I'm an attorney, I get all of the lawyer jokes like how can you tell when a lawyer's lying it's when their mouth is moving and things like that that like legal training and skills can get a bad rap um because there are a lot of logic and rhetoric in action but this is a corruption of all of the nuance and precision and the rightful purpose of advocating for a rule of law that's necessary for our ordered human society and so with with a foundation in truth and a foundation in using this pretty powerful skill for the good. I love what you said about meeting people where they are, because that's one of the most important things, whether you're speaking with friends or speaking professionally or uh, doing apologetics is knowing your audience and knowing what you intend to convey to them and how it's going to be best conveyed. So that's very far from trickery. It's charity to meet people where they are and communicate with them. I think so too. Um, and even with books, I think we have to meet authors where they're at. Books are written yes. with very different audiences in mind. And sometimes we're reading it thinking, I mean, with my students in Aristotle, a lot of times they're reading these pagan ideals thinking, what is he saying? This does not, this is not in line with, you know, what we believe as Christians. And then a beautiful conversation arises of, okay, well, let's meet Aristotle where he was at for a minute. He was right on a lot of things, not everything, but he had a lot of wisdom in these ways. Um, and I think that is, uh, that's one of the, the biggest pieces of the rhetoric curriculum too, is so we're writing speeches, we're writing persuasive speeches, we're reading persuasive speeches, and the goal is really understanding, you know, how are you going to open someone's heart 
to your message. If you come at them without establishing any sort of relationship, any sort of rapport, they're not going to listen to you. And so there are a lot of tools that we learn in the class, like, you know, sharing an anecdote, sharing a little piece of yourself, your favorite quote, explaining. So, you know, in research writing, we're very used to being like, I'm just a wee little student. Uh, I have no authority. I count on other people for my authority. Then we go into rhetoric and it's, you have to have your own ethos, your own authority, your own stories that connect you to the topic so that people want to listen to you. Part of being a great orator, right, is throwing in those little things. Um, and so I, I really enjoy that piece of it is there's a level of vulnerability in rhetoric done properly. Um, when you People can tell, I think, when you're being truthful in rhetoric, and I think it goes a lot further than a lot of the fallacies and tricks that we might see in some modern rhetoric. Right. And that is sort of the inspiration for this episode. Like I, that expression from the movie, The Princess Bride, I don't think that word means what you think it means. I That occurs to me with both rhetoric, especially, and logic as well, that you hear the word rhetoric tossed out, like, that's just rhetoric. And it's just instantly disqualifies whatever is being said and shuts down conversation and whatever it is, it's just meant to be like, okay, that's the end. Yes. I, I Aristotle kind of predicted or, or knew, spoke to this kind of danger of rhetoric. Um, he talks about how, you know, rhetoric is, is the most dangerous tool or a very dangerous tool when used to harm, but a powerful one when used for good. And just, he echoes, you know, rhetoric and truth is more powerful. Uh, now, our understanding of what that truth is is obviously <laughs> different and grown, but I think that that is kind of the key to shifting this perception is we're not yelling at each other on different wavelengths, just trying to make our point known. We're meeting the whoever we're speaking to and finding that tiny, tiny speck of common ground, whatever it may be, and building from there. And whether that is just a, a fable from, you know, that's why in classical comp, we start with the fables, whether that's the story of the tortoise and the hare, because everyone knows that poor hare was working so hard <laughs> and we can relate to that hard work or whether it's, you know, um, you're relying on someone else's good works or authority, you know, like Mother Teresa or any of the saints um, that are widely recognized, how they exhibited a certain quality that maybe you want to bring to the attention of who, who you're talking to. Um, and I think we've lost a little bit of that ability to see the common ground and to root and to really understand that the goal is truth. And I see this a lot with when my students come in and they, we get to the political rhetoric section and they're like, oh, political rhetoric. I don't want to talk about it. It's just so stressful. And I, and I have to tell them, hey, you know, the goal of political rhetoric is the good of society. What is more noble? Aristotle calls it the most noble because you want to make the world a better place. Having that shift as well of political rhetoric isn't arguing. It's seeking to better the world you live in. And um, really honing in on that is another really cool part of the class. This is my second C.S. Lewis quote in recent podcast episodes, but everything that you're describing reminds me of a line, I believe it's from Near Christianity, that God knew what would happen if humans use their freedom the wrong way, but apparently he thought it worth the risk. Um, I just, I love that way to think about it. When you get to political rhetoric and your students are feeling a bit squicky about it, which I can totally relate to that, like, oh, let's just not, do we have to go there? And, and it 
for the exact reasons you're giving, we definitely do need to go there then. So getting from knowing we need to and the actual doing this, these skills are taught in, by rhetoric. The core piece of the political rhetoric section or all of rhetoric is really understanding um, the past. And that is a big, uh, I guess, theme in classical education is, uh, is understanding the past and ability to draw back to it, to move forward. This is something everyone agrees with, but we just see it taking different forms today. Um, but I know that's something that I have really loved in teaching many different levels and stages of classical writing. It's really amazing to see um, when we do study older speeches, the timelessness and how in classical education, it starts at a very young age where they're starting to memorize famous quotes, Crea's maxim, they're memorizing fables, they're memorizing these common points so that when they go back, they can refer to them. And then also along those same lines, in parallel, they're also learning about government structures and the, you know, the ends of each type of government. So what is the end of pure democracy? What is the end of a republic? What is the end of a monarchy? Um, and so being able to connect the dots. But one thing that I really love about classical education and why we teach rhetoric when we do is that everything has a time and an order. And so you're not trying to have a political argument before you've learned the grammar stage, you know, before you've had some time to perfect logical thought. Um, and I think that is something that is really special about Colby and about the curriculum is that it's there. there's a path. We're not just trying to throw them into these difficult discussions in ninth grade. In ninth grade, we're making sure they have those foundational skills of grammar, of sentence structure of just being able to have at least that authority, right? I always tell my students, your ethos starts with your MLA heading on your paper. That is part authority part one. Then comes, you know, your sentence structure. If you spell everything wrong, you've already lost your audience. You know, we need to start there. And then we move to logic in 10th grade where, okay, now you know how to write mechanically, but what are you trying to say? And there's an order to that too, which is so comforting, right? There's an order. And then finally you have those two pieces in place. Then you get to go to 11th grade and in rhetoric, you get to say, okay, now I've made my argument. I've written it, but how can I make it beautiful? How can I make my audience ponder what I'm trying to say? How can I switch the order a little bit? to really make my audience come to these conclusions as opposed to me forcing it upon them. Um, I have this memory when I was in grammar school, I made a mistake on an essay or something. I used a word totally wrong, like it, embarrassingly wrong. And the teacher came, you know, gave me some comments and I've improved in my charity and respect for elders, I promise, as I've gotten older. But I asked, <laughs> you know, well, you know, we were reading Mark Twain and Mark Twain, you know, makes all these grammatical mistakes and errors. Like, would he have failed this paper? Or I don't remember what grade I got. And he's like, you are no Mark Twain. <laughs> and I just chuckled and I, I always, that always stuck with me because I think that's very much what we're trying to instill in these kids with, with this is, okay, you want to break the rules? You have to learn them first. You have to know them really well. You have to practice them a million times. Then you get to 11th grade and we're going to tell you that you can break all the grammatical rules for an effect. And it's really fun. Reminding me of our mom with piano practice, which Bonnie's the piano major. So I don't claim piano playing in my talents, but I know my way around the keyboard just generally. And our mom would always talk about like, don't practice your scales wrong, because if you 
learn your scales incorrectly, first you have to unlearn those before you can actually do what you, the the scales are supposed to prepare you to do. And so, like you were saying, learning learning the rules and then learning how to break them uh, for a purpose or with awareness of it. It's like, I know there are people who just hate passive voice in writing 100% of the time. I probably hate it about 90% of the time, but I do use it. And that's one of those things of you learn, like, why is an active sentence structure generally better? Why do you want to avoid passive in general? But then sometimes you want the attention on the uh, object of the sentence rather than on the subject of the sentence. And so there's the purposeful uh, choice there. And it's there's a lot of freedom in being conscious of and intentional about that rather than, well, this is all I know. Yes, absolutely. One thing I've really appreciated going through our, our experience has been so far the classical composition stages. And uh, last year we did the newly rewritten grammar ninth grade course, and we're working through 10th grade logic and, and the English course plan this year. So um, I've really appreciated just the imitation. We're going to give you these texts by these great writers and these timeless sayings or stories or sources, basically. And first, you're going to learn them really well. Then you're going to um, kind of break them down, make sure you understand the meanings of them, and then you can build, make variations from them or rewrite them in another way. And it's not, you know, just write something. <laughs> what do you want to write about? It's not any of that. It's like, we have this goal for you to write this way so that you can say what you want to say, what you need to say, what you're called to say with as much nuance and richness of vocabulary as you can. I'm not just going to throw you out there and say, all right, bring it to me when you're done. This is let's go through these steps. And I've really appreciated that both as um, working through it, even coming from some writing experience myself, just uh, I can relate to, well, here's the topic, but how am I going to get there? And this approach really uh, is different in that way. And that's kind of far away from, from rhetoric, but I think the approaches to rhetoric that you're describing, I'm looking forward to working through that. It sounds like there's so much to be gained, especially for folks who are unsure of themselves when it's time for them to speak if they have some skills in rhetoric, it might make it all the, that might be the pathway for them to be able to say what they need to say. Yeah. And that has been one of the greatest rewards of teaching that class. So there's two parts that make set me up for these kinds of emails, but first it's 11th grade. So I have this, I've taught the sweet juniors who are stressed, <laughs> preparing for college, writing their college essays, <laughs> and they need letters of recommendation. So knowing I'm the rhetoric teacher, they're like, yes, Mrs. O'Connor, you know how to convince people that I'm awesome. Let's have you write the letter. No, but more seriously, they'll come back later and say that they had to write a speech for this situation or they had to write a paper and they felt that Colby prepared them. They felt they had the tools. And I hear that a lot of, I had, to, you know, I used the things that we learned in rhetoric to get to format, you know, my speech. I knew I needed a little story, a quote, all these pieces. So it really does give them this template where their three creativity can thrive, which I think all students need. I need that. I need to know what are my expectations. And we know professors all have different expectations. But as far as what is timeless and good, I feel like them leaving school knowing that 
is a huge gift is something that I can't wait for my daughters to take rhetoric because, you know, whether or not they go off to be lawyers or use it every day, I really do feel like it helps you understand how to reach people. Just, you know, when you feel like you're hitting a wall, well, what is some just teaches you to seek common ground, which I think every person can relate to. And I too love the modeling pieces of our curriculum. And so in the 11th grade course plans, you'll see the same sort of thing. It really, mo- it, you know, goes up from the 10th grade. But what you'll see is they're studying speeches in these particular forms of rhetoric. And then they're asked, they're not just asked to write one, they're asked to really analyze and see what the good qualities and the tools were in these ones that have stuck around for ages. And then they get to, you know, use that as a starting point for their own ideas. And as a teacher, I end up grading way superior work because of it, right? They, they know what it should sound like. They know what their end goal is, which is very important. And so I think it, it works both ways. The students know what's expected of them. The teachers have communicated that. And so um, it ends up being a lot of fun. You mentioned getting to grade way superior work. and <laughs> I think that's true. I think that these skills are skills that are not taught a lot of other places. And it was really eye-opening to me. In law school, There, most law schools have a law review, which is like a academic journal that is run by third-year law students. And it will mainly publish articles from outside authors. But part of the program is that the second-year law students write their like 25-page research paper within the law review um, parameters, and then they have a chance to be selected to be published. So I was the 3L in charge of the 2Ls writing their papers. And so this was interesting because these are all people who have completed a year of law school. So they've finished high school, they finished college. I had 20 who I was in charge of. And so many of our like required meetings that I had to have with them were, okay, what, what are you trying to say? And how best can you say it? And so I even went back to, I think I may have asked our mom if she still had the Colby PDFs from when I was in high school, because they're they're the same skills. And these were people who have graduated from college and are halfway through a professional doctorate who are lacking these skills. And they recognize there's something missing here. Like I'm not I have everything in my head and I just can't get it onto the page and what's happening. And so to learn those in in Colby, starting with the foundation of the grammar stage and then working up through 10th and 11th grade is such a such a benefit that I've been grateful for myself. And then just to see it with other people, um, both those who don't have it and then watching Bonnie's kids as they are able to walk the walk the Colby path, really cool. Yeah. I think it's even more important for students to have those skills today because of the wide accessibility of information on the internet. So, you know, if when the first round of topics come around in rhetoric, it's like the history of music or, you know, it's very big. And if they were to search that, their results would be endless and some could be problematic. And so teaching them, okay, well, you clearly love music, let's, let's narrow that in, you know, what is it about music you want to say? What, what's your argument here? And then tailoring it down and then showing them, okay, if this is your thesis, where does that research lead you? 
Um, because I feel like that is something that a lot of people kind of get left to the wolves on of, okay, we're writing a research paper, pick a topic, and then really your research could end up anywhere. And there are some topics that are more problematic than others. And so just teaching them to be aware of that and to really have those thoughts, make, it, it really helps when they're in college and they don't get to page 15 of their research paper and realize, oh no, I have nowhere to go <laughs> that I want to go at least with this paper. Um, so. And I think that's another really intentional thing that we're the English teachers talk about a lot at Colby is, okay, we want to encourage our students to have that intellectual curiosity, to have creativity, to be able to really take ownership over their topics. But as their teacher, they still are in high school and we still want to guide them towards, you know, scholarly research, things that are going to be edifying good topics. And from the listener's perspective, I don't know, I think I can use this analogy since we're on a on a Catholic podcast, but have you ever been at mass and there's a homily where you're like, okay, maybe he has a point. Wait, where where is father going? Like what, how did you get from there to here? And I can see there's something going on, but I'm, I'm not getting it. Maybe it's me. Um, but that sense of like owning your topic, that really helps. You can't be persuasive if you don't have a coherent and complete idea of where you're going in the first place. I always give the example of the four-hour CPR class I was at before teaching. I, there was a whiteboard behind the instructor that was blank, and we were just in it for four hours. And I just remember thinking to myself, if he wrote like three objectives on the board, I would totally be on board for this four-hour session. I would know like get through the safety training, then get through the CPR practice. But it just felt endless because there was no goal listed. I just, and the whiteboard was just glaring at me as a teacher. But I think it's the same, you know, we teach them in the logic stage, how to define their terms, how to narrow them. And I think that really helps them in rhetoric because then when they do launch into their thesis. They can clarify ambiguous terms. They can make sure we're all on the same page. They can make sure the point and even their structure, they can divide that division principle of logic, divide their topic. Um, so then it's very easy to follow, you know, oh, mentally I've gotten over this hurdle of their story of their childhood. I know I can hang on for the hurdle of this. Like we have such <laughs> little attention spans. Our attention spans are so small. So I always tell my students, just assume you have a, an audience of goldfish and they're, they have like two <laughs> second attention spans. So you got to keep hooking them, hook them with a, a figure of speech and then, you know, let them know where you're going. There has to be a path. So I totally relate, though, to sitting, listening to a homily and wishing there were the objectives at the beginning, <laughs> but that's just the teacher in me. Oh, the goldfish. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. I am finding as a mom working through the homeschool course plans for Logic that working through these particular topics is helpful to me interacting with my son who's also studying logic. And I think it's fantastic that these study that these topics are, are part of the curriculum in high school. And for students of those ages, the high school ages, as they're getting ready to move on in their lives and still being very much in a phase of development that is not yet ready to take on the world all on their own. Yes. I think for any vocation, whether marriage or religious life, logic and child psychology are, should be mandatory subjects. Just because, you know, getting to understand the way we think, it just helps us 
as humans. It's been a really huge gift being a part of these course plans for Colby and just being able to interact with students at different levels. Um, you guys know now I'm down with the little ones, the, the elementary school kids, and their sense of logic is so beautiful. You know, you see them kind of grow into their own confidence and their own very intense sense of justice in fifth grade. And, you know, they, they, it's naturally, these things are written naturally in all of our hearts. And so uh, it's really cool. I, I think homeschool families who are able to follow this through, I mean, what a beautiful gift for their family to, to really connect and grow. I think so many of these skills, many of us don't have them or had them at one time and they've grown kind of latent or rusty. This is part of our responsibility as, as educators of our, of our children, that these skills are every bit as necessary as the more technical. For the past several years, the focus has been so much of, on STEM topics, science, technology, and engineering, and mathematics. These other skills are every bit as important, if not more so, just for relating to each other because people are always more important than things and, and trying to interact with each other and live well the circumstances. So Colby uses Peter Kraft's Socratic Logic book, right? And then like the logic class that I took in college used a textbook that talked a lot about, like it talked about Aristotelian, but also Boolean. And where you see Boolean logic a lot is in computer programming. A lot of coding and a lot of, I mean, the the infrastructure, the source code that allows us to be recording this podcast right now is built on a lot of symbolic logic and interactions and things like that. So the focus on STEM education without the kind of the liberal arts humanistic underpinning, it's a house built on sand. It It's a cool house. I mean, I, I love my technology, but like you said, people are always more important than things. And so learning this way to relate to each other. So we're in a very balanced home. I am all liberal arts and my husband is math, chemistry, and every STEM skill you could imagine. Um, and so, but he actually writes more than me as a chemist. He writes 30 page reports like every day. So for all those students in rhetoric who are like, uh, whatever, you know, I'm going to be a neuroscientist or I just let them know straight up, you will write more <laughs> than me or any writing teacher, any, you know, um, even an author who's writing their novel, you might end up writing more than them. <laughs> And talking to people, you have to explain your work. This will distinguish you, your ability to explain yourself to and these concepts to people and teach teach about them or work with other people on these projects. It's not just you working on them. It'll be a collaborative experience. So the ability to work with other folks is so important. Yes. I, I talk about this with my dad all the time. My dad's an engineer. I come from a family of engineers. I'm kind of the black sheep who ended up in liberal arts. Um, but, <laughs> you hold everybody but, together. <laughs> right. And, and my dad always talks about all these PhDs who he works with, who just, they have the knowledge, but getting it out of their brain, you know, it's all textbook up there. So it's really hard to work in that environment because they're trying to solve problems together. It really, I mean, every job deals with people, human interactions. And so when you don't have those rhetoric skills or those interpersonal skills, it really is hard, no matter how, how brilliant you are in your particular field. I was also going to ask you, there are several different courses of study for logic, right? We've got Socratic logic. We've got what Hope is talking about, Boolean logic. Other studies of logic that I see come up in even Catholic homeschooling curricula, other providers, whatever, that starts younger or um, is sort of in a different approach um, 
do you have any thoughts about uh, the particular logic text that Colby uses that that distinguishes it from its from its uh, peers? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think on a very basic level of preference, I love Peter Kreeft, <laughs> and so I think that was a big motivator um, in in choosing um, the Socratic method. But also, we study Socrates um, in rhetoric and his kind of use of rhetoric to get himself out of trouble or it, 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 there's just a, a almost a lightness to starting with socratic rhetoric we and it's very much in the mode of of education with you know socratic seminars i think the students are really accustomed to socratic logic i think it's interweaved into their education whether they know it or not and so i think as far as a starting point i think that it's a it's a really great <laughs> um, school of logical thought, I guess, to start with. But I'm by no means an expert in in all realms of logic. I love what you talk about with like kids have kind of a an innate sense of logic and order and justice and all of these things. But then developing it and the the Socratic logic all the way through the computer programming logic. It all fascinates me. Is there anything that you would like to add to what we've been discussing? Um, I think maybe just pointing to the natural progression of the trivium and that um, I know. So a question I get a lot is, is in middle school, should I take grammar and classical composition? Because Colby offers both. Um, and so I guess just to point to the purpose behind the trivium, right? Um, there's the grammar stage, the logic stage, and the rhetoric stage, and they are positioned where they are on purpose. So they're positioned to meet your child's mind where they're at. You'd, where um, in the grammar stage, they're really good at memorizing. And so that's why if you take classical composition, they're memorizing a ton of figures of description, they're memorizing fables, they're working to, to understand. And then slowly, you know, as they they get those memorization tools and they start to dull a little, then they're starting to use their own mind um, to further those skills and use what they've memorized. And then once they've used what they've memorized, it they are able to expand upon it and make it more beautiful. So I know, you know, everyone has different times that they enter into classical education. I didn't have the gift of being classical educated, classically educated from birth either. It was introduced to me much later. So I guess my little soapbox is that it's never too late just because you're not a, a young kid with a really great mind <laughs> to memorize all these things. Um, I like to keep a commonplace journal, which is a very typical classical practice of, you know, just a journal with with different creas or maxims that I see around, just always looking to get my rhetorical toolbox more filled with just things that can connect me to people and allow me to, to grow through those stages, even later in life. So for those of you with young kids, I encourage you obviously to start young because it's such a gift to them to be able to start in those early narrative fable stages and build up this cultural wealth of, of things they can draw back to. Um, but if you are joining later, I think it's naturally written on our hearts. So I think we do pick it up quickly. Um, so there's always a benefit in starting 
part of the trivium whenever you're able. And, you know, we can always refresh grammar as they're learning rhetoric, but it's just a little harder, but not impossible. <laughs> That's great. And I appreciate the perspective that you bring to it from not having it, that form of education yourself, I have the same. So I think I am particularly sensitive to some of the terms that are tossed around, you know, classical or trivium or logic, grammar and rhetoric, these kinds of things. The assumption is that everyone knows what we're talking about. It's really nice to just back up a little bit and say, here's what that actually means in the classical sense and even what the classical sense is. We start there and then we <laughs> define these other terms. And I think once it's explained that way, it, it, we can recognize that, well, sure, that's just as there is natural law written on our hearts and, and how we are made, this education kind of goes hand in hand with that, with the the natural progression of the person and the development. So that's been really interesting. It inspires so many more questions and, and yeah. um, um, directions we could go. And so, right. And so I'm glad we've gotten our turn to talk to you on the Colby cast. Thank you so much. It's been a yes, real thank pleasure. Thank you. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.